All right, so we'll jump in. And uh, just to note too, we were um, just realizing, <clears throat> I did not share this in the intro, that um, uh, Carlos will not be joining us today. He had some other items pop up, um, but hopefully he'll be able to join us in our next episode. Um, uh, yeah, so uh, jumping in. So I think today's topic, Emma, I think we wanted to talk about this. It's something that we talked about at the beginning of our podcast journey. So actually going on a year, by the way. Oh my gosh, you're right. A year. Mm-hmm. I'm having a moment. We started doing this right like when COVID, like yeah. when things started um shutting down around that time. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. I completely forgot. I did not make that connection. I appreciate you bringing that up. Yeah, no, yeah. It's it's weird. Um because we've been in like collective trauma like the whole time too. It's that, yeah. This correlation with the pandemic. <laughs> um yeah. So yeah, no, it's been about a year, but um, our, I remember one of our first episodes, we focused on dysfunctional workplace dynamics and specifically within mental health counseling, which I think we probably have touched on here and there since we focused on that. Um, and it comes up in so many ways, but I think both of us, Emma, we've had some uh, encounters with some of those dynamics again. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so we've, we've encountered that and I think uh, we've been having some conversations around that. So it made sense to maybe come back to this in our podcast and talk about it because these dynamics are very prevalent and they have not mm-hmm. suddenly gone away. Um, so, yeah. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm having various reactions to just things I've had to encounter and just to give some context to people who are listening. So um, within our group, you know, we've had people, you know, come on from various different places and um, you know, there is, I think we've talked about this maybe in that episode, Emma, Again, I'm going back a year almost, but um, I think there's this really weird like thing about loyalty within the mental health field. At least if you work within, you know, the capital region of New York State, there is. I can't speak for for everywhere, but there's a very weird loyalty dynamic. Um, It's very capitalistic, too. I mean, it's very just like, you know, um, yeah, just it's very seeped in like the business and the money. And um, so there's that. And uh, yeah, and I so again, to give some context on my end, um, I have run into this at various points since we've been in our group and people come on, um, but it happened most recently. And this person, you know, they had to navigate some pretty dysfunctional dynamics from where they were leaving. Um, and again, it's a story we've, we've heard time and time again. Um, but yeah, so I'm just having various reactions to that. And at the same time, also holding, even though, you know, I think within our group, you know, we do things in a very kind of unique way and we keep you know, or we seek to keep people very independent and operating their own business and we don't, you know, dictate certain things. Um, you know, I think there's always this constant fear of falling into those dynamics on this end, or at least for myself, right? It's like, if I'm not careful, I could certainly perpetuate, you know, all the best intentions, but still perpetuate those dynamics. Um, oh, yeah. You know, so that's where, yeah, this is kind of resurfacing for me at this point. Um, and there's just my own past trauma mixed in with all of that. So, um, yeah, Emma, what have been your, what's been coming up for you? If you don't mind sharing again. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, oh my gosh, sorry, I don't know if you heard a beep, but I apparently have an alarm set on my phone. I did not. Um, I don't. Okay, cool. Yeah. Carry on then. Um, excuse me. So, I luckily have not had any um, completely toxic dynamics since transitioning to common sense. Like, I, I think kind of speaking to your point of like you're very conscientious about not replaying a lot of those dynamics that you've had the um, pleasure mm-hmm. of observing. Uh, <clears throat> that was sarcasm for anyone who didn't read it. Um, <laughs> but, uh, I can say just from my perspective, I, I have not been having those dynamics play out. Like this is by far the healthiest job I have ever had. Um, but I am still in contact with some of my friends, like previous coworkers from other jobs and things like mm-hmm. that. Um, whereas as I see previous coworkers leaving jobs that, that I may have had with them, um, I am just getting snippets or I, now that I'm no longer a part of that system, I can kind of be the, I wouldn't say neutral, but I've, I've been in that position of like the sounding board almost, mm. um, which has been very weird. Like mm. it, it's interesting. You mentioned like your own trauma reactions. Oh, I can see mine. So clearly, because mm. I immediately like it's just so quickly back into that same mindset of like insecurity, 
um, lack of safety, having to be so on edge and protected. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And like, I can immediately jump back into, you know, like giving that advice where I'm like, okay, well, here's how you could keep yourself safe in this toxic, abusive environment. And it's, it's so horrifying to think like, oh, mm. am I really going to give people advice on how to cope to continue to stay in that mm. environment? But like, mm. realistically, it's kind of like, you gotta get out of there. Like, nobody deserves a abusive work environment, mm. right? Like, yeah, no one's deserving of abuse, period. But oh my gosh, now I need to get it from my job? That's mm. horrible. Mm. So I've been having just like this very odd sensation of almost like dipping my toe back into these really terrible dynamics. Um, not in the sense that I'm actually involved in any way, but just as an observer, mm-hmm. essentially, like just hearing about it. Um, and it's been helping me to make some connections about some things that are playing out in my personal practice that I hadn't quite connected with experiences from previous jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've had a previous job of mine that's huge on uh, essentially like this is your client, so you need to make it work for your client and or with your client, essentially no matter what. Mm. Um, and now transitioning to private practice, there are times where clients have like a change in their work schedule that is mm. outside of my work hours. And it's this whole weird like it's so deeply ingrained. Oh, now I have to change my whole schedule so I can keep seeing this client. Mm. Like, no, I, no, I don't. Like, that's, right. you know, unfortunate when termination happens from something like that because, you know, if it's a great working relationship otherwise, yeah, it's a bummer. Yeah. Um, but I'm not actually obligated to, like, exist solely for the benefit of my clients. Mm. Um, so it's just been kind of weird. And I, I know even recently I was sharing you in the consultation around like accepting insurances or trying to get paneled with insurances that I don't currently accept to essentially like sustain one client. Right. Uh, right. Which I really like my clients. I have some of the coolest clients in the world. Mm-hmm. They're fantastic. Um, but it, it really does speak to that deeply ingrained pattern of, oh, I must do this because this person is my client and therefore my sole responsibility. Right. Gosh, how dysfunctional is that? Like, my God. (laughs) Deeply ingrained savior complex coming in hot. Yes, yes. Yes. I don't think, I mean, nonprofits never, I know nonprofit settings and big agency settings never, ever, you know, perpetuate savior dynamics. Never. Oh, no. That never happens. That would be terrible. Yeah, yeah. Thank God that never happens. Right. And again, sarcasm, obviously, very much be very clear here. <laughs> I hope that one could be read. That was very apparent. Yeah, yeah. Good disclaimer. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I've just been having a lot of thoughts around, like, wow, I've been gone. Like, I've been full-time in Common Sense private practice for a year. Mm. Um, and granted, I was with Common Sense longer than that, but I, I had a, another job. Mm. Um, so, I, I feel like I didn't have any distance mm. initially. Now that I've had a year of distance, it's kind of like, what the hell was I doing? Mm, like, mm. how weird was my reality? Um, it's funny because people in my life will kind of say, like, oh, you must be, like, stressed all the time. And I, I feel like they have this association that, like, me as a counselor is stressed all the time. Mm. I'm like, no, me as a counselor is actually pretty damn relaxed. Mm. Me as a counselor in previous jobs with really toxic, abusive, unhealthy dynamics. Mm. Oh, yeah, that Emma was stressed out all the time. Mm. That Emma was, you know, not doing great. I, I can just remember so many times at home, just, like, working my mm. entire weekends away, of mm. course, not getting paid for it, um, mm-hmm. being guilt-tripped if I didn't, mm-hmm. just having zero work-life balance. Mm. I was, like, emotionally a wreck. Mm. Like, they anything wrong i don't know my husband sneezed and i was emotionally fragile it'd be like full breakdown over something that's not anything mm-hmm. um yeah and it was so interesting to not even necessarily have noticed like wow this has gotten really really bad mm-hmm. um and just like this i don't want to say learned helplessness 
just this expectation of like, oh yeah, this is what it is, and this is how it is everywhere with this field. And mm. It's unfortunate, but like, that's all it'll ever be. So this is fine for now. <laughs> um, so it's yeah. been really impactful to recognize that that is not actually the case. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And it is. It's in. Yeah. And I think that is part of what happens, right? There's this sort of like learned hopelessness and helplessness that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think comes up for, again, I could certainly relate to that at different points in my career. And I think definitely, um, you know, and I know one thing that, you know, I've had to be careful of, um, you know, posts working in a larger agency setting and then also just working for myself has been, um, I could easily replicate the dynamics and environment in which I'm constantly busy or urgent or like in crisis. Um, mm-hmm. I could certainly do that by whether I take on too many clients, which thankfully is not an issue for me at this point, it was at one point, um, whether it's, uh, you know, just other responsibilities or initiatives or things, um, you know, I am somebody who I will fill myself up and do it too much. And then, you know, then I, I'll, and granted, I'm trying to do a lot better with this, but I would do the fun game of them becoming resentful towards the things that I had overbooked. And it's like, you know, not necessarily, you know, I would very much keep that in check when it came to clients, but like initiatives in general or my work with colleagues, um, so having reactions and it's like, no, this is all my own time management. Like no one asked me to, to, to mm-hmm. overload myself or to throw away my self care. No one ever asked me to do that. I, mm-hmm. I willfully just did that. So, um, so I've had to, I've had to look out for that, but I hear you. I'm like, it's like, yeah, there's a sense of like, um, I remember one point, um, this was again, many years ago, but at one point, um, being in a particular setting where, um, and where I was working at the time, I was, I was over, overseeing, staff but um i had a another manager um who was uh, i guess sort of at the same level that, that i was um but different department um come to me i remember they they were very and it was it was it was humorous then and it is now because like every day i was in this job it was very 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 busy everything was urgent everything was you know and that's there were just again many factors and reasons for that um but it was very urgent and i remember i was like multitasking as it was whatever i was doing i was doing email or something and this manager comes in and he's like very concerned like he's very like very serious and i'm like well you know what's what's the, what's the issue and he essentially like boiled it down to you know the the team that we had uh wasn't being urgent enough things things are not urgent there, there's no sense of urgency and and i'm like i just started laughing i was <laughs> I was like, really? <laughs> okay, tell me about that. <laughs> uh, where would you like to see more urgency? Like, where, where would that, you know, like, and it was just so funny. And like, he was dead serious. Like, he was he was trying to help. He was not, you know, but like, he, you know, he, he saw, because here was the issue, right? He was seeing actual problems. He was seeing things not happen that needed to happen with particular just, you know, things within the agency and was getting upset that these things weren't getting done. And he was absolutely right. But the urgency, my view then as well as now, was not the issue. It wasn't the, and if anything, partly why those things hadn't gotten done was because there was so much urgency everywhere, right? It was like everything is a crisis. So when everything's a crisis, you're just, you're constantly just on the move doing things. You're prioritizing crises. You're prioritizing crises. It's lose-lose. Right, right, it is. And unfortunately, what happens is I think for, certainly for our clients within a setting like that, um, that's where client needs get pushed to the wayside, right? Just get, you know, and I also think there's a lot of perfectionism in that looking back on it. Like there's a lot of perfectionism. Um, and yeah. And of course, like, I, right. And yeah. And I, I totally played into that myself, but there was just a lot of perfectionism in this, like, you know, really like intense shame that came from said or unsaid um, that came from, instances where things were not perfect and just how detrimental that was and perfect in the sense of like oasis uh you know those of us in power again myself included when i was there um those of us in power like perfection you know defined by that which is also problematic even if you are perfect and you quote meet those those expectations um yeah it's just like oh it's just it's so clear now i'm not being in some of those situations but looking back but then Again, I, and I've seen this play out in private practice settings. Like this is not like, you know, I know we've, we've picked on some of the bigger agencies before and, you know, we hear those stories from agencies all over, but um, practices do this too. You, you know, I, again, some of the dynamics I just, again, weren't even at me directly, but just I became privy to and was seeing unfold um, highly toxic, dysfunctional stuff. Um, oh, yeah. 
to and and you know and towards people that I I work with and respect. Um, but yeah, that was all within a private practice setting that that was all happening, you know. And people, you know, have caseloads that are more manageable. And um, at this particular place I know of, I don't I don't know what the pay scale is, but I'm sure it's better than. So like the pay is probably better. It's still, but the but the dynamics are still there. Like it's you, yeah. you know, there's a lot of overlap even. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so yeah, so it's it's interesting because yeah, and I feel like I'm kind of rambling here, maybe, but yeah, I hope that makes sense. It makes a ton of sense, and actually, I'm getting a little quieter because my mind is currently being blown by the connection you're making to the perfectionism. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, mm. perfectionism was so encouraged and expected. And I can recall like the shaming meetings of like, well, this isn't been done well enough so we're going to have meetings to review what has not been completed and we're going to call out each mm-hmm. clinician who has not done it mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. oh my gosh how have we not made that connection thank you for uh-huh <laughs> yep yep um just a total side note to that i think I, I i put you on the spot last time or maybe it was the time before um just going to plug um some of the anti-racism work uh, done for Didi. This is talking about perfectionism, white perfectionism. There's a lot of information that I've learned um, mm-hmm. from, uh, yeah, just various admins associated with that group. So again, anyone looking to do some serious anti-racism work, this is this is where a lot of the, I'm, I'm making these own connections for myself. That's where a lot of that is yeah. happening. Um, so yeah, just putting that out there because um, I know Emma, you're looking to maybe engage. Yeah. Challenge my white perfectionism a bit more. Uh-huh, uh-huh. 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 That's been my biggest stumbling block. <sighs> yeah. Yeah, I appreciate the challenge. Yeah. The challenge. And not that we have to, you know, <laughs> jump into that here, but yeah, um, mm-hmm. it is though, right? It's like that's, it is. Mm-hmm. It's it's very much that. Um, yeah, I just, yeah. Anyway, I didn't want to. Have to do it all right. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And I feel like you had more to say. I feel like I kind of cut you off a bit. No, no, no. I don't. I'm just. I'm just kind of really impressed with the connection and I'm kind of like thinking back to a lot of my experiences at my one particular agency that I most commonly look back to for toxic work environments. Um, there's so much there that absolutely influenced some of my perfectionistic thinking. Not that mm-hmm. I have, to be fair. I cannot blame it all on the agency. <laughs> like you've right. really got plenty of that on the own. But well and that's uh, I mean, that's my sense too, right? The, the agency, I know, again, you know, agencies where I've worked at, at least, that these have been products of these larger systems, right? It's like, you know, the reason why everything is so urgent. I mean, I know where I worked, um, and this is, I have no problem um, naming some names with this just because I have been outspoken about this before. Um, uh, and, and in particular, you know, I worked at places that were under uh, OASIS, which is the Office of Alcoholism and Substance Abuse Services. Um, and there's other regulatory agencies within New York State too. And depending on, you know, an agency's funding and, you know, what their services are, they might be overseen by any one of these agencies. Um, but this one in particular, you know, I remember places where I worked at, this this regulatory agency that was basically responsible for directing funds and for approving budgets and giving basically the support, they were awful. I mean, they they really, I've heard that it, it, it has since gotten better and it's, you know, it's, some issues were resolved, which is great, but... I'm sure even today there's still, you know, places lacking. And I remember though when I, I worked in the field, that was like that was the big thing was that essentially, you know, we only had so much, and this agency would basically um, kind of like dangle carrots. I remember like just from a from being in like upper management and being another, you know, you would see it happen. I mean, it was like, oh yeah, no, if you do X, Y, and Z, and you meet these criteria, we're gonna you know, provide this funding and we're going to, you know, approve you for this particular, you know, and then you do all those things without the resources that are really needed to do it. Um, again, it's all perfectionism, right? You got to check all the boxes. Um, meanwhile, client care is, eh, you know, cause that's kind of only like 20% of like what we're truly worried about. Um, probably that's being generous. Um, and, and yeah, and it was like this game and it went on for years. I remember watching this play out and just being like, you know, yeah, so I mean, the system very much, and Oasis is a great example of this. And like I said, I do not mind throwing them under any bus, any time or day. Um, I just I've watched how they treat some of these agencies, and clients have suffered greatly because of yeah. some of their actions. Um, but um, well, lack thereof. Um, but you know, I think that yeah, I just I, I think it's 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 hard when 
that is the larger, like those are the larger systems. So yeah, I think some of these places have their own dynamics and we see it play out, but there are larger systems that are by design um, basically fostering this. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, you have counselors and staff that are burned out and and are traumatized and tired um, and feeling as though they're not enough. And then their clients are getting the the quality of service is based on that, right? Mm -hmm. Um, It's based on counselors who are like you were saying, I'm working on the weekends and you know, having to put in all these, you know, all this time and energy and often their own money, um, mm-hmm. yeah. which, and I know this happens in other fields too. And like I think about teachers and, you know, so just, there's just, again, lots of different examples. We're, t- we're talking about kind of a subset of it, but mm-hmm. um, yeah. And, and that is a good point that it's not just within the mental health field. Cause you know, absolutely. There are unfortunately tons of toxic, abusive work environments. I, I know even outside of mental health counselors, I have plenty of people in my life where I'm hearing about their work environments and it also kind of brings me back. Mm. Um, but that, that is a good distinction to highlight. Mm. Yeah. 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 Wow, I so do not miss that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess it has... Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm wondering, because as we're having this podcast, even, I'm wondering, like, you know, how can we talk about this? Essentially, for I'm thinking for either a provider who is, um, and a side note, too, as we're talking, if the listener here is buzzing, my phone is going off for some reason, but um, I'll do that afterwards. Um, But I'm wondering if we could talk about this in a way we're thinking about providers who are currently in that situation and navigating some of these dynamics as well as clients, right? Because again, like at the end of the day, that's I think ultimately who suffers the most. I mean, us, us as providers really struggle with these dynamics and with the expectations, but um, certainly I think clients bear the run of it. Um, yeah, so I guess how, yeah, like how do we navigate that? And not that we're going to have any firm or clear answers here, but um, yeah. Oh man, I knew that answer would have stayed happily at my previous job that's a lot I would not have mm. um, but um it's funny because I'm feeling myself having some of my own reactions to every time we acknowledge how much client care suffers because um, I think if I think to myself and some of the other clinicians I've had the pleasure of working with um at some of these agencies like just how much we would try to just to like kind of continue with like this abuse kind of analogy, not even an analogy, because it is still very much an abusive dynamic, um, but how much it felt like as a clinician, I was trying to shield my clients, aka the mm-hmm. defenseless child in my abusive marriage, mm-hmm. from all of the dynamics that were playing out and being thrown onto me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I often would try to like pride myself on, yeah, but the clients, you know, clients don't need to know how burnt out I am or how miserable I am or how, mm-hmm. you know, I... There was a whole period of time where I deluded myself into thinking that, like, after getting screamed at and hiding in my crying corner of my office, that, like, clients didn't know I was back there crying. Mm. Of course they did. Mm-hmm. And then my eyes stay red forever. Of course they knew I was mm. crying. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Like, but there was this whole mentality around, like, no, we're still, at, we, at least we're still really good clinicians and really good providing, you know, client care. Mm. And I think it's maybe it's one of the things I wish I had heard a lot earlier was like, no dude, client care is suffering. Mm. You're not okay. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, and just like taking a step back and similar to what I, I would say with clients of like, Hey, if it was a friend telling you this, what might you think? Mm. Um, it's a lot easier for me to have recognized the abuse dynamics when I saw them playing out with other co-workers mm. instead of thinking about like oh I'm getting yelled at or I'm getting cursed at I'm the one that's on the receiving end of, of these mm-hmm. these dynamics no it was just like well you know I'm having a stressful day mm. um, mm-hmm. so I could see it a lot better when it was somebody else that I work with that I care about mm. um, or didn't care about even I don't just seeing it in other people I would notice it easier right um so for any of the clinicians that may be listening, kind of like thinking about if it was a friend or a coworker that you're witnessing these dynamics play out with, mm. would you call it a, an abuse dynamic or a toxic dynamic? 
if so, your workplace is toxic. Right. Kind of like to start making those connections. Right. It took me a long time to make the connection. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm going to. Yeah, and, and I guess, and yeah, just, just to add to that, it's interesting because I think about the, um, what it means to be genuine with our clients, right? And so like, this is where this does get really interesting because, um, and this is pre-COVID times, at least from my experiences, um, you know, and granted there were, there have been ongoing um, system related traumas for most clients, most people that I've worked with and I've, nav- you know, I've had to navigate, um, you know, and especially in an agency like this, where, you know, there are these dynamics that staff is navigating and that they're, you know, going to be reacting to. And right, and like you were saying, I'm a client, see that clients pick up on that. And we want to be holding a space for them, right? We obviously, we don't want to make it about ourselves. And that would, you know, become problematic. But when you're right, encountering your own trauma, within these systems and you have a client who's navigating theirs and they can tell, like you said, whether it's, you know, and I think you're right. Like, especially in some of these settings, you know, I think clients know, especially if they see you multiple times a day or they're, you know, present all the time, you know, like they're going to, they're going to see these things play out. They're going to catch on to it. Um, Just like, you know, a family system and you try to leave the kids out of it, but the kids always know. And, and not to reduce our clients to, you know, that role, uh, in all forms, but like in this, it's like, that's, I think kind of what we try to do, right? We try to like, you know, nope, we, it just, it can't impact the clients and it won't. And I will go over here and process. I remember at one point in a job that I was at, I remember I went out into my car, sat in my car and just like screamed and like hit the steering mm-hmm. wheel after a really like, uh, basically a, a, a conversation that became very argumentative and I stormed out of, a, of this room. And I remember doing that and thinking, okay, I got to collect myself and go back in. And like, <laughs> like imagine a client in the parking lot just like oh there's my friend and easily that could have happened right easily that could yeah. have been you know and like and then you know yeah so I think that that's you know and I think you're right that we kind of like fool ourselves a little bit but I think part of it is we feel like we have to right it's like we're, we're just trying to survive and make this work and that's what that's what we're doing but um no unfortunately I think that is one of the ways in which that comes through so then how do you so if you're in that situation how do you acknowledge that with a client and yeah. um I, I do remember, and I'm, I'm happy with, and I look back on it, how I handled some of these conversations where, um, you know, essentially, you know, something might come up or where, for example, like, and I'm sure you ran into this, you know, in certain agency settings, you might, you know, again, especially if clients are there all the time, um, you might get clients that are very, um, they're not only privy to the, to these dynamics, but they're open with you about it, right? Like they're open to talking about with the therapist, like, hey, so I see like, you know, this happened and this happened and what are your thoughts on that? And like, they, they want, you know, and yeah, and, and that's completely valid. They they want to they want to know this impacts their care, right? Yeah. So, you know, I'd have clients come to me with that, and and instead of going down this road of like, you know, okay, like I don't, nope, we're not going to talk about that. Nope, I don't know, you know, just completely just shutting it down. I wouldn't I wouldn't get into the nitty gritty with them, right? I wouldn't rehash issues I was dealing with with them, but I I would try to be honest, say yeah, you know what, there are dynamics at play, and. My guess is that, you know, you have probably seen this within your family system in maybe some ways. You probably have seen this in other, if you have been through, you know, other agencies and other other services, um, you know, we're dealing with some of our own versions of that here. And um, so if you do notice that there's an impact or you see that I, you know, seem a little bit distracted as we start talking or, you know, that absolutely could be part of it. And I'm not going to deny that. I'm not going to, you know, because I think denying it can in itself, in of itself be very harmful, right? It's like... essentially then we're just gaslighting our clients. Exactly, right. Hey, right. counselor, I, I'm noticing this dynamic. No, you're not. What are you talking about? Mm-hmm. Yes. I don't know. That wouldn't happen. Yes. Like, oh my gosh. Just yes. Yep. And eroding on with that harm, I guess. I don't know. Well, that's right. But I think that's a good, that's a good term though. I, mean, I think it, it is, it is a form of gaslighting and... Um, and then, yeah. And then like what I would like to do in that situation too, is try to ask, um, and again, I think I did this before, but, you know, basically kind of acknowledging it would then want to find out more how it is for the client, right? It's like, how is this for you? Like when you pick up on this or you overheard this through, you know, whatever, like, how is that for you? What is coming up for you? What does this bring you back to, you know, you know, and, and kind of trying to explore that. But again, as a therapist, you're doing that while you're also in that trauma, right? It's a very... Uh, I say interesting, but that's probably putting it uh, nicely. Um, it, it's a very, you know, but it is, it's a very interesting, um, dysfunctional 
dynamic and place to be. Um, Because you can't really, you know, I had someone point this out who, um, uh, and again, this was, you know, many years ago, who um, they didn't work where I worked, but they were basically like, you know, as you're describing this, like, that's, that's not therapy, right? Like, if, if your day is consisting of what you're telling me, that's not really, or you're having to do this with your clients and meet these checkboxes and do X, you know, that's not really therapy, like you're doing some case management, but it sounds like it's really case management, that's like what the state wants, and you're not really doing therapy, like that's not really, you know, and yeah, and it's, yeah, it was, yeah, it was hard. Um, so I think that, I did hear yeah, you know, so I think that, and it was, um, but yeah, so I, I'm, and again, I hope this is helpful to providers who are listening or even clients who are listening based on their experiences. I, I hope that this is helpful as we're talking about this, but, um, no, I think you're right, Emma, though, just going back to that. I think it's, it's something that we, we can't really deny and we shouldn't, but we're taught to, we're encouraged to, right? Like that's, oh yeah. Yeah. Don't talk about this with clients. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm not. I'm also just to be clear, not encouraging like go out of your way and talk about it with clients or anything like that. But um, I remember, I think you are the one who taught me to acknowledge it. Like, yeah, things may be at play. Right. I would never really like. I would not go into it because then again, now it's no longer. It's definitely not therapeutic. Now it's just like I'm venting to a client. Yeah. Actually. Yes. Uh, but I, I feel pretty confident in saying it's never crossed in that line. Um, I think at most, you know, I would make jokes in the floor building around like, oh, you know, just the paperwork here, which is my favorite part, of course, or something mm-hmm. like that, where mm-hmm. it's a half a second moment of like, yeah, I'm acknowledging the paperwork is annoying, which mm-hmm. as clinicians, we all know, always joke about the paperwork. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's, it's such a difference than like I'm going to now lean into the dynamics that you're observing and mm-hmm. validate them and explain them and talk about my reactions like no 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 but mm-hmm. it's still not helping with my clients yeah it's just, it's frustrating it is it is yeah because again we want to be genuine we do not want to you know but then at the same time right it's like it is our job to hold that space and mm-hmm. to not basically to not center ourselves mm-hmm. in in the work um and right, and I think, you know, and it's one of those things where it's like, to what degree taking up any of that kind of like center or, or um, having the focus, right, having the focus be on ourselves as providers, to what degree, if any, is that actually helpful to the client? And I, and I think it does kind of come back to that, right? It's like, how helpful would it be in this moment for me to, to demonstrate or show even on a, you know, maybe limited sample scale, but show kind of where I'm at, and then be able to focus on the client. Um, would it be validating for the client? You know, cause I, I could see, I mean, this is kind of like, you know, this comes up a lot um, in terms of if you have a client that's, you know, processing something and crying and really like getting into this, this moment and you're feeling that with them and you could certainly start to have your own reaction. Um, some cases, some, for some clients, it would be helpful to see their, their therapists maybe have a tear or have, you know, something, you know, happen. Um, other cases, it would not. Other cases, it would be, you know, very much like, you know, no, like, I'm finally feeling this. And now, okay, now I got to comfort you. Now I got to, you know, right. think about mm-hmm. about you and your tears. Like, you know, so it, it, I think it ties into that, right? It's like, how do you, and there's no firm answer there. There's no like, but I do think it depends on a lot of contexts. Um, if that makes sense. I think it's, it, absolutely. Yeah. I, cause I, as somebody who can be emotional, I, I will also acknowledge I'm not somebody, I'm not the clinician who is just like crying in every session or anything like that. I mm. probably can count the times I've cried in a session on like a handful of times. Mm. And that's it, probably. Um, but I always kind of make it a point well after, aka like the next session in general, mm. to kind of acknowledge like, hey, what was that like? Yeah. What, what reaction mm-hmm. do you feel like you're having now? Not in the moment, you know, like, it's not like, hey, client's getting emotional, now I'm getting emotional, and I say, hey, client, what is it like for you to see me emotional? Because, like, yes. it's, like, so decentered, the client. Yeah, um, yes. So absolutely not doing that. Um, but even allowing that for just, like, a processing moment um, can at least be enlightening. Mm-hmm. I, like, I did have a client once where it was kind of, like, honestly, I get really uncomfortable when people feel bad for me. Mm. Um which ended up being great because we could talk about the difference of empathy and like sympathy. So, right. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. I'm now going into like this little rabbit hole about being genuine and emotional with clients, which is no longer about work dynamics, but uh, 
Well, but I think it also shows that they're they're very related, right? It's like it's very interconnected. Um, Right? Yeah, no, seriously, though, because it is. And I think that it does. It kind of brings us back to that, though, of like how genuine can you be in our work with our clients um, when we're dealing with abusive dynamics, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Yeah. One thing I did want to bring up um, that is going to kind of switch us a little bit back to the private practice um, dynamics, because this is this comes up. So what I have not experienced or seen as much in these larger agency settings, right? So I think, again, like we talked about like abusive supervisors, we talked about, um, you know, lack of resources, the funding issues, the, you know, just again, the sense of urgency, all of that. And private practice settings, I mean, some of that can absolutely come up. Like we said earlier, I think it can overlap. Um, but one thing that I've seen come up, and I see it come up a lot in these groups that I'm in, and like, so like on social media, I'm part of like various different like therapist groups and specifically therapists that are in their own practices, right? Kind of talking about navigating the business and, and the field. Um, one thing that comes up all the time, and it's probably like maybe even like once every couple months, this question is posed of uh, non-compete agreements, non-compete agreements. Like that is a very like... Um, so if it's okay with you, I'm, I'm going to rant for non-compete about non-compete please, agreements for a moment. Okay. Please do. All right. So what I'm going to say, and for providers who are listening, and um, if someone is in a position where they're even like thinking about sort of what that means in our field, and um, my therapist put it very well when I was mentioning to him about this. He goes, "If you wanted to, and by the way, there's nothing wrong with doing this. By the way, it's um, it's a you know, I'm sure it's a field in of itself. But if you want to go and sell tires." go and sell tires. Like if you want to go and like sell like a product or sell things and have like agreements or patents or things in place that um, protect your idea, go and do that. That's not how social services work. Well, it is, unfortunately it is, but that's not how this should work. Right. It's like, you're, you're, you're not, you're not like selling a product or like a particular thing you're in human services and in human services, things get very complicated because you have therapeutic relationships, you have, you know, this is different context, different things. So what I'm getting at here, and, if, and for those listening who are still like, what was he talking about? Um, a lot of, um, and again, I've seen it through practice settings. I don't see it so much with larger agencies, although I'm sure some of them do it too. I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, but, um, but, uh, but what I see a lot of businesses do within mental health is have their providers sign non-compete agreements. And what that, basically what they're trying to, well, it's, it's funny because it's actually not clear what they're actually trying to accomplish with it. I think it's meant to be this sort of umbrella of don't do anything without me and, and basically whatever you do should be lucrative for me. Like that's that's essentially like what the goal is. That that's what the whole, I think around it is. But when you start to break it down, it's not really quite clear. Are you talking about like forming a business similar to like that practice? Are you talking about, clients following you are you talking like what like what about competing like what and it's always very unclear and if you read through these agreements and i have unfortunately in the past had had signed one before and it was uh you know brought up to me um but have have signed this before and i remember going back and reading through it and and really it it still wasn't clear um there's also a lot of talk at least within new york state now i want to be very clear we are not lawyers on this podcast so please do not take this as, as legal advice and please consult a uh, any like attorney or someone who specializes in healthcare law before you do anything. Um, but there is a lot of like, I think very um, strong, well-based rumors that these non-compete agreements are actually just a farce. Like they're not even, they're not, you can't uphold them in court basically. Now, again, I'm not a lawyer, but I've heard that time and time again, that, that a lot of them are just BS and it's meant to be a scare tactic for providers that are working within a particular agency or practice. Um, and it's interesting because so I was having this conversation, I was actually having it with, with my mom at one point. And, and it's just, it like blows my mind because like, like when you're in a field of any kind, generally people don't stay with the same job or in the same position their entire life, right? I mean, we saw that, I think, you know, very privileged, very specific members within our society in like the 60s and 70s did this um, because capitalism supported them in doing that. But ultimately, that's not how that's not how most of us operate or navigate our careers at this point. And there's many reasons for that. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So what will happen is you'll have somebody who is ready to make a shift. Um, And this ties into the situation that I had a colleague navigate recently Um, uh, that, yeah, you have a a person who's looking to make a shift and they're doing that on their own accord. And that's, you know, 
And yeah, there'll be this weird loyalty thing that starts to come up of like, oh, you know, everything from, you know, well, you shouldn't leave. Why are you leaving? You know, you should be staying here, you know, all of that. Um, okay, fine. Fair enough, I guess. But then if you actually do proceed with leaving, yeah, there is an attempt to, okay, well, now you have to end all of your therapeutic relationships. And these clients are the property of this, like, literally, I don't know if the term property was used, because I know in my case, when I navigated this myself several years ago, um, the the person I was navigating this with, um, how should I put this? They know better, right? They're very, they're very smart. They're very, very smart. Um, very vindictive, but very smart. And so they wouldn't have used that term, but that's essentially what this is about, right? So these clients are the property of whatever. And um, yeah, that's not, and I just, I have so much issue with this because it's like, well, A, if, if you were operating a practice or a business that was facilitating people wanting to work with you, that was healthy and had healthy dynamics and that attracted people to work for you, like they would stay. Right. And, and even in, a, even in a, I think in a, you know, environment that is very healthy and very well, like, even in those cases, you're going to have people who move on because they're going to just figure out that they want to do something else. Or they want to do it differently, or they want to do it on their own or whatever that's going to happen. So like, and I'm not saying you have to be jumping up for joy that you're losing someone. It's not about that, but I guess it, again, it's, it's very capitalist, right? I, I keep going back to that, but it is, it's like, it's very, um, you know, this idea that people are not supposed to do that. And again, if they do, um, you know, they need to then completely just, you know, they're not, they're not going to have any support in doing that. Like that's not, um, you know, and yeah, I just, I have a lot of issue with this because it's one thing, I guess, if you're in marketing or, and actually, as I, as I talk about this, these dynamics are not healthy anywhere. And again, they're steeped in capitalism, but um, yeah, at the very least, it's like, all right, I, I, I could kind of see that you know, in these other fields or like, you know, like I, I think about my father and my father's in IT. He runs an IT company. I get that a little bit more, right? Like, you know, don't, you know, take our information with you. Don't take our client. You know what I mean? Like I, I kind of see that more, but yeah. And when it comes to therapy, when it comes to health services, I would imagine this applies to doctors. It applies to anyone, any, you know, practitioner, anyone with a, with a license to practice their profession. It's like, if that person's in a position to continue seeing their clients and to continue to do that in their own, like, that's going to happen. And that's got to be okay. Right. I guess it's just, yeah. I, again, I just rambled. So, but this no, is, you, just, you were just preaching and like, yes to everything. Uh, it's you, such a repulsive practice. So yeah. What, what are your reactions to it? Emily? Like, what, yeah. What would you so, add to that? A lot of reactions because I just find it to be such a disgusting idea to kind of reduce human beings, clients to only moneymakers. I recognize that, there's the business side of things, right? Like, mm. I, you know, even for myself, I do have the awareness that like, oh, I'm having a session, AKA I'm getting paid for this hour of my time. Mm -hmm. You know, like I, I'm very aware that I get paid when I have sessions kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. Um, but like, yeah, that's fine. They, having sessions is how I make my money. Um, but to have it just be so reductionist as like, oh, you can't have your clients, you know, these living, breathing humans with preferences and needs and, like treatment regimes that they've established with not treatment regimes, but like treatment plans and goals and things that they're working on with their counselor. And we're going to just decide that, no, you can't do that. Or you have to, if they ask if they can go with you, you have to give them this certain specific kind of vague answer that isn't actually telling them like, <laughs> yes, they can. But like, if you were to Google my name, like, no. You. you know what's um, messed up we know what's really messed up just to add that real quick yeah and again I've, I've had colleagues talk about this and like talk about this experience it's like when when this happens like when when a provider's in that position and they're like having to like say well i can't actually you know um facilitate any kind of you know direct referral or but i can't stop you from it's like when you're having that conversation clients know which is like just speaks to our systems once again like just how, like this is just the norm like mm -hmm. Of course, my provider is in this position. And of course, got it. I'll, you know, like if I were a client, I would be like, I got you. And then I would just like, you know what I mean? Like, it, again, talk about shared trauma, I guess. But like, yeah. there's there's something about that, which is just so dysfunctional. I just, anyway, I had a reaction it's to really that. Disgusting. Yeah. 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 It's just so, it just is one of those frustrating things. 
I find I get most frustrated with this field when it's so hypocritical to everything we're taught to apply to others, mm. right? Yeah. Like, even if I think of grad school, we're taught, hey, you know, like, not every client is going to vibe with every therapist. You can't just decide who a client sees and have it work out kind of a thing. Right. But then that's exactly what it is in practice. Right. Oh, a new client. Uh, Emma, you're next up for a client. Here you go. Mm-hmm. Am I a good fit for this person? Mm-hmm. Do I have any experience with their presenting issues? Mm-hmm. Like, no, no one checked. Okay. Well, yep. yep. Here we are. Yep. Um, and to then say, well, because of this, this kind of essentially bullshit contract that you signed, mm. now you can't have them go with you, even though you have built that rapport, even though you know there are no other available clinicians, even though there are no other available clinicians with the experience that's necessary for this client. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Or, I mean, of course, even if there are, the client just doesn't want to keep on rehashing their entire history, you know, right. like they do every single other time they have to get a new therapist. Right. Like, just oh my gosh, just let it happen. Right. These are people. Right. Let them have their needs met. <laughs> yes. Yes. Absolutely. Well, let them have their needs met. And if you're having a mass exodus of, of people from, and I say mass, I mean, like, you know, if you have several people suddenly leaving, then, you know, it's kind of like, you know, if you're working with clients, I mean, granted, obviously having staff and having clinical supervision is very different from therapy, but it's, I think it is similar to like your caseload where it's like, all right, if you have several clients leave kind of one after the other, it could be coincidence. Like it could very well just be that there's just, you know, things shifting in the air and these clients are ready to move on and that's, that's fine. But it also may be time for as a therapist to kind of sit with that and go, all right, like, is there anything that I'm doing? Anything that I could be doing? Something I need to look at here? Like, is there, is there something about me? Is there something about my role in this? And just sitting with that and looking at that, I think as a business owner, that could be a really good opportunity to, to, to do that, you know? And, and I guess here's my other concern then. This goes back to what I, I think I'd mentioned at the very beginning. Like my concern about falling into this pattern as well is that um, within our group, right, this hasn't happened yet but i do expect that people are going to move on at some point and i like to think that i'm going to do it very differently than the people mm-hmm. before me but um i do have a fear around that of like wanting to ensure that we're not fostering some of those same dynamics i think it's just so easy to do it right yeah. especially speaking as a white male um you know business owner and like it's very easy for i think us to, to fall into these dynamics and for me to do so um so this is my own stuff i'm just putting it out there but it's not it's for me to work on but yeah, like that's something that I've been having to kind of sit with and go, all right, like when this point happens, and if I and certainly if I lost a number of people at once, you know, what would I do with that? How would I handle that? Um, you know, versus how I've seen other clinical directors and supervisors handle this stuff and their struggle with it. Um, Thinking back, I'm still resentful that I never got an exit interview. Ah, uh, <sighs> I've had, I've had instances where I've had that and I've had instances where I didn't have that um uh, yeah the next interview can be interesting depending on the context yeah yeah (laughs) yeah I feel like they would be enlightening no matter what and Mm. and I mean to your point hey if I'm the one running this business or this agency and I'm having a bunch of people leaving perhaps completing an exit interview and similar in a way again very different but when you're terminating with a client like mm. hear them when, right. even when you're not terminating but if you're doing one of those periodic check-ins of like hey how are we working together how's it going between us um yeah and actually like hearing their responses non-defensively yeah right? like yeah if i'm being told hey like i really like working with you but there have been these times where you do this one thing like i need to hear that if i want to continue working with this client or to determine that like hey you know what my style, like that's a really inherent, like deeply held piece of my style. So that mm. won't change. So mm. what I would suggest is, is, you know, us finding an advantage or whatever. Mm. Like we need to be able to hear the feedback that our client is giving us. Yes. The same thing could actually happen in an exit interview. Yes. Granted, you know, if that were happening, we would hope that maybe clinicians would be heard prior to the point where they're leaving. But <laughs> that's a good yeah right i'm just i'm just like nodding along and i'm like oh shit yeah that's right <laughs> but that would be that would be great right yeah that'd be cool, that'd be cool. uh-huh but, you know lowering expectations is fine let's start exit interviews mm, yeah <laughs> which granted you know not to say that that would solve everything because i'm sure my gosh after 
leaving an abusive work environment, I could, in a different situation, I could see me being very like, no, it's totally not you, it's me. Yes. Yes. Just to talk about that for a moment, I I think about that too, and I was just thinking, it's funny you said that. I was thinking about that as well. Like, um, and again, going back to you know how white people navigate this stuff, um, I think there's a lot of that sort of niceness, right? It's like I don't I don't want I don't want to rock the boat, even though I'm like out the door. I don't want to rock the boat. Like, what is up with that? Like, why? How? Why do we do that? Like, I don't. So the way I see it for myself yeah. was this whole period of time because there's almost like this guilt of leaving. Yeah. Because yeah. You are, at least with my experience and some experience with people I'm closer with, there was already this responsibility placed on every clinician. Like, mm. oh, you know, you're needed. If you were to leave, you know, like that's, that's of course, great for you. But, you know, Tim is really going to be buried under the work that you leave behind. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, so if I leave, I am the one. You know, mm-hmm. making so much more work for my coworkers that I care about. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's like this preemptive guilt trip that we are given as like, hey, here's your automatic baggage. Yeah. When you leave, it's your fault that everyone else is going to struggle. Right. Your right. clients will be de- devastated. Your coworkers will be buried alive in work. Like, mm. oh, everyone's self care, which we value so much, is going to just be totally disrupted. And mm. Like, oh, I don't want to say anything that, you know, a bunch of clinicians are unhappy because now anyone else who's still here gets that fallout. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And um, that's just yep. based on my experience. I don't mean it all. No. Here's the answer. No, no, no. But no, I, but I think you're right about, I mean, I think that that's probably a part of it in a lot of cases, right? It's like there is this sort of, I mean, I'm thinking about each place that I have left. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And actually in, in all cases, it, there was some of that, right? It was like, yeah. that comes with the whole loyalty, the weird loyalty thing. Um, and it's like, yeah, well, you're already like, essentially you're already doing something so terrible. So why would you complain about it on your way out? You know, it's mm-hmm. like, and it's all by design, right? That, that's all, it's all yeah. by design. Um, and I think even those perpetuating it don't necessarily realize that, but it is, it's, that's what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and I think about that because like I think about how an exit interview and really any point in one's career, but it certainly depends on like, you know, I'm not, I want to be careful here because there are people who are not in a position to do this. But if you are, you know, what is your position, um, not just within our society, but within a particular agency culture um, of being able to speak up? And that is something that I know, and I think I've shared maybe in some previous episodes, but I, I still sit with, like there's points where I think I did speak up in certain ways in certain mm-hmm. contexts that I was in. There were other other times where I didn't like that, like that practice I left that I was referring to before. I, you know, did not at all. I nodded my head. I I was very chill. I was like, get, keep your head low and get out. And mm-hmm. I did that. Um, I get why I did that. But looking back, you know, this was something where, yeah, there was a lot of risk to me. But, you know, I think that there also was harm done by me not saying more. Yeah. Right. And it's like, and I could have said more, like I, I should have taken that risk. I think it would have been okay for me to do so. Um, and if that person were to reach out to me now, I would, I would be very clear with them about where I'm at with all of that. Um, yeah. You know, that, that would not be, you know, I think I'm, I'm a, a better place with that, but I think about that. Like I've, I've been in exit interviews where, yeah, I just, I just went with it. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, I had an opportunity to say something further and I didn't. Um, yeah. Again, it's something I got to sit with. But yeah, I think you're right, Emma, though, that there are these dynamics that, you know, I think facilitate this. And it's, it is, it's it's really tough. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. It is not easy. Yeah. It is, it's such a juxtaposition. For, mm. Just as I'm, as I'm talking about this, it, it's so like, wow, this is not my life anymore. Mm. Yes, I still see the way, I, I absolutely see that I have this, obligation to every client who I ever start working with to like make it work no matter what which I'm actively challenging recognizing more so um so I absolutely see some of the ways mm-hmm. things I've learned from much more toxic work environments um it's still playing out for me now but just mm-hmm. if I think of my day by day like I'm sure there have been times where I've been upset by private practice you know like this if you know 
but that's more like the understandable client crises mm. of just like oh this it's upsetting because you know somebody is is um you know concerned for their safety mm. so not upset right. like i'm angered or crazy emotional but i just may be feeling a little bit more stressed one day or maybe one of those days where like a few high needs clients at once right you're you're not being abused in that yeah, right like yeah. that's if, if i'm correct in that like it's like you're not being yeah these things are stressful and like well, we worry about our clients and we mm-hmm. you know and, and right there are those times where we're doing a lot of work even outside the session to do whatever and that's that is that's that's what we're here to that do a that's a part of it exactly um but that's not abuse like that's not being it's stressful exactly. but it's what we signed up for it's, it's what you know we need to expect yeah that's very it's, it sounds like that that fits but that's exactly yeah. And it's funny because yeah. now I'm thinking, even with my previous job, there would be plenty of times I was there working, you know, a 12 hour day or something like that right. to do all of the paperwork and all of the whatever. Um, and I would resent that, of course. Yeah. I'm supposed yeah. to be here eight hours and I'm here 12 and I get paid for eight. Like, mm-hmm. come on. Mm-hmm. Um, like, <laughs> we're not even getting into the legality of like, I'm actually supposed to be paid for 12. Mm-hmm. Um, but. The times I didn't resent staying late was when it's like, okay, it's two minutes before I'm about to walk out and, you know, a client approaches that they're yes. feeling unsafe. Yes. Like, oh, okay, I'm stuck here. I, I, don't, I don't know if it would ever happen where I'd be there until 12, but even if that, or 12 yeah. hours, even if that were the case, I don't resent that. That is me doing my job. And part of that is like, eh. Right. People don't have their crises on their schedule. So, okay. Right. I'm here now, like, I'm available. This is cool. Yeah. Not not this is cool, but, like, this is... I hear what you're saying. Yeah. 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 So those were never the times where I was resenting the extra time, even if it was unpaid extra time. Right. Because that, to me, was just, like, client safety. Yeah. Yep. I got to pause for a minute. I remember from my blood (laughs) Yeah, no, Emma, I think you're, you're spot on with that. And it just... And one thing I'll add to that, and I do know we've got to be cognizant of time so we can begin to end, but... Um, I think that there's, yeah, there's that difference in terms of that, again, that sense of urgency and, but also, you know, being present and being like taking, taking our roles as therapists seriously, but also like, are we, how should I put it? Are we using the power and privilege that we get as therapists and that we may have in other areas? How are we doing that to benefit our clients and to benefit our communities? That is all separate from the kind of abusive dynamics that we're talking about. And I think a lot of people get this confused, right? It's like, you know, it's, it's a sense of like, well, if I'm made uncomfortable, this is what it is too. If I'm made uncomfortable at all, I must be in this kind of abusive dynamic. It's like, no, obviously abusive dynamics are very uncomfortable and they're not okay, but there's a difference there in what's happening and in terms of what, you know, what that means for that person. So just kind of thinking about that, because I think as we're trying to do work, hopefully on ourselves as clinicians, but I know, again, speaking as a white male clinician, um, engaging in, in, again, whether it's anti-racism work or looking at other layers and privileges that I have and and trying to take ownership of that, um, you know, there's a lot of pieces that are going to be uncomfortable. That is very different from what we're talking about here. And that kind of uncomfortability, I do need to sit with, Um, you know, but yeah. So anyway, I just want to, and I think you drew some good distinctions there too, Emma. Like that's, yeah, I think that's a, a, yeah, makes makes a ton of sense. Um, yeah, I know we do got to end, um, but, uh, yeah, any final thoughts, any, anything else before we do wrap up? Um, I'm trying to think if I have any final thoughts on the topic and I don't really think I do, I guess to the agencies engaging in these dynamics, um, do better for your staff and your clients. Mm. Um, but as far as. Do you, well, I'm sorry. Do you have any final thoughts on the actual no. podcast topic? Okay. No. <laughs> I don't want to just move on without letting. <laughs> no, that, that was that was my final thought. Yourself. Oh, thank you. But no, that was my final thought. We're good. We're okay, good. perfect. Um, I do want to highlight a black-owned business. This one is potentially. I say this for like all of them. It's like one of my favorites. I was just um, thinking that. I'm like, you say the same thing every time. I know. I just have been really enjoying eating. Apparently. Um, Nothing wrong with that. Is Nice. nice. Um, it is called Soul Pops Popcorn. Um, gosh, I forget now which state it's in. Maybe Tennessee. I don't know why I suddenly assume I need to give a whole history of the company. Um, but I love the concept. It is soul food flavored popcorn. Mm. Um, I 
I think they have like seven or eight flavors and it's all like pre-popped and everything like that. Um, surprisingly fresh. I ordered it and was mm. kind of like, oh, I hope this isn't like, I'm thinking back to the airport popcorn that for some reason I thought was going to be fresh and it wasn't. Mm. Um, it was not like that at all. It was delicious. I got the heavenly mac and cheese flavored one, which I oh. highly recommend. Oh my God, it is so good. That's yeah, that's like so good. That sounds amazing. Yeah, I'm but I'm getting more. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and then they have, of course, like a hot, what was it called, hot buttered off the cob corn or something mm. like that kind of popcorn. Nice. Which I also want to try. But then they have like chicken and waffles, dill pickle, like just some really oh. unique. I, I, everyone goes, oh, to the dill pickle one. I really want to try it. Well, side so, note, I meant that as like a positive, oh, like that sound, sounds okay. really good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 I feel yeah. like most people judge me for my intrigue with the dill pickle flavored popcorn, but I am, okay, if I get it, I'll give you something. Yeah, absolutely. It's probably delicious. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, they just have some really cool flavors, um, like a fried chicken flavored one as well, um, but delicious. So delicious. Oh, that sounds Everybody so good. Everybody should buy it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's relatively inexpensive. Like, granted, it's not the same thing as going to the supermarket and buying, you know, the microwavable popcorn. Um, but I think it's like seven or eight bucks for mm. a good size bag. Um, which, you know, just FYI, you can house the entire bag if you were me and you wanted to. <laughs> um, well, so it's not like so giant. <laughs> right. Well, and like, again, given all the different flavors, and it sounds like. Like, I mean, that's, I don't know. Like, I, I would expect it to be more, like, that's totally yeah, reasonable. It's like so, yeah, it's so cool. I am so here for it. Um, I think that's, that sounds really like, good. The business I'm buying from the most consistently. That's awesome. I don't know what that says about me as a person. <laughs> well, no, and like, I, I mean, I'm, and I'm definitely like, I'm very pro mac and cheese, just personally. Yeah. So, like, for just everything. hearing that, I'm like, and then I just want mac and cheese. Um, it's so good. Yeah. That's awesome. That's I feel awesome. like I haven't tried any of the other flavors, but I'm already like, the mac and cheese is the best and it's my favorite. Mm. Um, but we'll see. We'll see. Nice, <laughs> nice. Yeah, and I'll once again, um, I think I may have done this in our last call, but certainly um, just make clear, I want to re re reiterate and um, for anyone who is interested in engaging in some really like solid anti-racism work and um, really kind of taking a look at, especially if you're white, um, taking a look at our role and how we are perpetuating and continuing to, to find my words, continuing to perpetuate our own racism and white supremacy. And if you're looking to really like dig into that and to actually do some real work in that, I highly, highly recommend the white labor collective, um, which is a group on Facebook. Um, and it is uh, put together by done for DD, which is a DD Delgado, um, uh, uh, business where they, again, doing a ton of work around reparations and education and, um, just shared like reading and like media um, stuff, you know, in terms of like, you know, just watching and, and reading things that are really relevant, but that are very much, they're led by um, black women and non-men and, you know, are really led by the experts in the field, not by other white people who um, are profiting off of that. So um, yeah, so highly recommend that. And just, I plug that again in part because even some of what we talked about today, ties into yeah. that, you know, ties into things that I'm, these, some of these connections are, are only possible from work that I've been able to do there. And um, I've had the the honor of being able to do there. So, um, yeah. It seems like that started as a capital district kind of group. And it seems like, I mean, I think I've seen people from Georgia and from the Dakota. Oh, all over. Like, yeah. It seems like so broadly. Yes. Like, I don't know, broadly spread. Yes. Yes. Uh, so it sounds like anyone who's listening can really join it. Oh yeah, absolutely. It doesn't. It doesn't it's not location dependent. No, no, it's not. Awesome. No, it's not. And that's the thing. And, I, and just to, and I don't know this for sure. I I don't know if it ever was, even like capital district, um, necessarily. I mean, maybe it was. I I wasn't there at the very beginning, but um, I think I joined last fall. It was around like August or so of last year. Um, but uh, yeah, but no, that's absolutely right, Emma. Anyone anyone can can join and again you know it's it's meant to if again if you're a white person going into this it's it's meant to to learn like you, you, the idea here is to listen to voices that um historically and consistently are not centered we talked about centering earlier but um yeah so yeah if you go in with that intent that it can be really beneficial um but yeah so we know we do got to end we'll wrap up 
Um, thank you for your time, Emma. Um, thank you, as always, for yeah. facilitating. Yeah, and of course, and uh, we'll pick it up. Um, just a side note, too, I know we're doing every two weeks. Um, listeners may have noticed that it's been kind of like every three weeks sometimes, and there's been things have been very busy and they come up, so we may not be like spot on with that schedule, but we also don't need to be perfect with it either. Right. So, um, Amen to that. yeah, so we will try our best, but that may vary. Um, yeah, that sounds good. We'll, we'll follow up. Awesome. All right. I right, think Emma. We'll talk soon. Yep.